This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, there's a lot to talk about this week, so we're going to jump around to a few topics. Uh, the first one in my home state of California has taken a page out of Texas's book, and that is because it passed a gun control bill allowing private citizens to sue anyone who imports, makes, sells illegal guns in California. Now, it's not the state that's allowed to sell these people, but citizens. And it's modeled after Texas's law that allows private citizens to sue anyone who aids or abets an abortion. They're laws that were specifically written to prevent Supreme Court challenges. And Richard, this this can't stand. So I need to know from you, how is the Supreme Court going to handle this? Because if it doesn't, states will essentially be able to circumvent traditional jurisdictional limits. Well, I think this is one time where you're asking the question in a way that sort of answers it. Uh, I think we have talked about this before. If not here, I've certainly talked about it elsewhere. But I was never a fan of the Texas statute to begin with. My view essentially is that what's really going on in that particular case is that these citizens are delegated agents of the federal government. Then what they have to do is to be subject to the same kinds of restrictions that would be done by by the states themselves. So the question that you would then want to ask exactly Exactly. What is California going to be able to do? Could it stop the importation of guns into the United States, or rather into the state? And I think the answer to that particular question is that it could not. That is, unless it turns out there's some specific prohibition uh, that exists at the federal level, the movement of guns, like the movement of any other commodity back and forth against state lines, is in fact probably going to be illegal. The argument would say, but we have to protect our citizens here, uh, to which the answer is it's completely non-problematic when you're looking at one of these cases uh, to put in place restrictions on who can possess a gun and how they can do it. Uh, The moment you start looking at those, if they're imposed by the state, you're going to have to essentially deal with the Second Amendment objections. And this is not the Second Amendment as I understood it, but the Second Amendment as was understood in cases like Heller and McDonald. These things bind the government. And I think uh, after we've seen the recent gun case uh, in New York, which sort of took the very strong position that you could not keep guns off the street by saying, oh, you have to show a special need in order to have it. It's going to be pretty clear that the state could not impose a restriction on the importation of guns wholly without regard to whom they're going to be sent to. And it's also pretty clear that if it can't do it and that the citizen is acting as an agent of the state in this particular case because it's received this explicit delegation, it can't do it as well. Uh, So what I think is the answer is that this is not a situation where they're bringing a private right of action. Now, what would be a private right of action, I think is pretty clear. Uh, What you do is you have somebody who imports a gun and sells it to somebody whom they know to be unstable and risky. That person then kills somebody. And the question is, when there's a kind of dangerous entrustment of a weapon in the hands of a private individual, is the person who entrusts them with the weapon being subject to suit? The usual answer, wholly apart from these massive gun regulation, is yes, you can do that. You cannot be a parent and give a gun to an infant that you own and knowing that he's unstable. And then when he goes out and shoots, say, oh, it's just the kid. It's not me. Uh, You can, in effect, get them. So I I think, in effect, that this is kind of a cynical effort uh, to take advantage of what I thought to be an unwise decision. And in fact, the abortion situation was somewhat different because it was a a question as to whether or not if uh, 
you want to bring one of these suits, is Roe v. Wade something which abolishes all the state actions, or does it simply say that they're unenforceable? And Jonathan Mitchell, who put this thing together, said, uh, oh, it turns out the law is still on the books, even if the federal government can't enforce it, and so therefore a private party can bring an action even if the government cannot. My position was, starting with Marbury v. Madison, if in fact you thought that the statute was beyond the power of the state, uh, then that legislation was void. And if the legislation was void, it could not be enforced by private parties uh, or public parties. So the difference between void and unenforceable in that case seemed to carry a lot of weight. So I think in the end, this thing should be struck down. And I think it would be well to do so because otherwise we will get this endless proliferation of private attorney generals uh, trying to do things that the state could not do. And that's simply intolerable in a world in which the state has special kinds of powers. Uh, Talking about the non-delegation doctrine is another way to look at this. And the usual response that you have is uh, there's going to be strong presumptions in favor of allowing delegation to administrative bodies that are also subject to government control, and a very strong presumption against the delegation of powers to private parties or individuals to do pretty much as they like. So I think, oddly enough, if you start looking at this and thinking about the Gundy line of cases, this would be struck down as an illicit delegation of power as well. Uh, So I don't think this thing has much of a future, uh, but my guess is you'll see a lot of statutes like this, and it's going to take a little cleanup both by district courts, appellate courts, and maybe even the Supreme Court before this movement is put to a rest. All right. Well, speaking of the Supreme Court, Ah, recent polls have shown that the public's confidence in the high court has fallen by quite a bit. And, you know, some on the left, especially following the Dobbs ruling, have been calling the decisions from the 6-3 court illegitimate. And the refrain that's used to justify this is that five of the six conservative justices were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Now, partly in response to this, Democrats have introduced legislation that would place term limits on current and new Supreme Court justices. So two parts for you, Richard. What do you think of this label of the court being illegitimate for those reasons? And should Supreme Court justices have term limits? Well, I think the illegitimacy argument is absurd and actually dangerous. What it says, in effect, is you follow all the rules of the book in a country which, in fact, designed the whole electoral system to make sure that majorities don't have their full way in all the cases. That's why you give extra weight to the Senate and all the rest of that stuff. To say that it's illegitimate only with respect to the appointment of Supreme Court justices is really bizarre, because if you took this argument seriously, then the president would be illegitimate with respect to every single action that he or she did, while sitting in public office. And that's simply a wildly untenable position to start the whole. So I think that this argument about illegitimacy is, is literally off the wall. It covers Supreme Court judges, appellate judges. It covers treaties that are entered into by the president. It covers his signature on all sorts of bills. It's the kind of irresponsible rhetoric that nobody on the left or right ought to be made. Now, with turn to the substance of issues, um, it's pretty clear that I am actually in favor of term limits with respect to the Supreme Court court and with respect to lower courts. Um, I don't do it necessarily because of political reasons, but I think that the original design was flawed. 18 years is plenty of time for somebody to be on the Supreme Court. And I think that if you put somebody on for too long, it just completely corrupts the whole system. They stay on long past their peak. They're out of touch with current values. In 
many cases, they suffer from a Supreme Court disease known as excessive self-worship. Uh, the <laughs> danger here is everybody wants to get something from you, so everybody's going to be completely nice to you. And so what happens is you start believing all the sycophants that come before you, no matter what your political beliefs are. Hard to resist that kind of stuff, and I think we ought to reduce that pressure. It also puts excessive pressure on the confirmation battle. Uh, you could now intone quite correctly that if you put Justice X on this particular court, she or he is there going to be there for 35 years. And that means you have going to have more objections and more fights over this stuff. And if you look at every other system in the world, they all have term limits with respect to their chief justices. And indeed, even in the United States itself, we have what are known as Article I courts dealing with bankruptcy kinds of issues and tax courts and so forth. These are all term limited courts, 15, 16 years. And it turns out that's the preferred system that we have in our own place because uh, the life tenure is a, just a very important issue that you have. I mean, I'm a sometime occasional appellate advocate. I do not think it's healthy to have sitting on the court somebody who's been there for 30 years who has serious impairments of one kind or another. You say, well, what about you? I mean, uh, here you are pushing 80 years of all. What business do you have being on the public sphere? And I think the answer is very simple. I'm doing it a la carte. And if it turns out I can't do something, nobody will hire me. Uh, but these guys were hired 25 years ago. And if they can't do something, nobody is going to be able to have a check on them. So I actually supported the presidential commission when it said that. But you can't do this by legislation. This is written into the United States Constitution. and You have to overcome it by constitutional means. Uh, the thing that I fear is if this process starts to get going, it's going to get going in a way which would be absolutely crazy because uh, the runaway constitutional convention, particularly in these heated times, is something that you really have to worry about. And I don't even know which way it would start to run. But so I have an instinctive aversion to doing even sensible things by constitutional amendments. The other thing, which I thought the commission actually did a pretty good job on, is the question of what's the size of the Supreme Court. Since 1869, it's been nine justices. It's not a constitutional requirement, it just as one Supreme Court. I think that probably means that it has to sit on bank in all cases, but you could have a Supreme Court with two panels, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't constitutional. But if you change the size of the court, you change the dynamics of everything, the way the oral argument is going to start to go, the way they're going to have to sit, the way the deliberations are going. And what was impressive is there were many people who wrote really strong letters saying, if you've been arguing before the United States Supreme Court, you know that this is a huge leap into the unknown, and that it's likely to be unwieldy in a certain kind of dangerous way, so don't do it. So I take very different views on the two kinds of reforms. I'm willing to entertain, if I could figure out how to do it, uh, making sure that term limits were put into place as a constitutional matter. But I'd be very strongly averse to doing it with respect to size. And if anything, my amendment would say the Supreme Court staff consists of nine judges sitting on bank in order to get rid of all of the suggestions that you can either fractionate the court on the one hand or, or expand it unilaterally on the other. So um, the commission's report, I thought, was a Pretty good report, actually, and I said so on the Hoover column. I guess it was in December of last year. It has languished since that time, but after the situation in Dobbs, it turns out that they're just people who are spoiling to get back at these people. The great iron is they agree to expand the Supreme Court. It turns out a Democrat loses in 2024. The Republicans now get to make four more appointments, and all of a sudden we're now in favor of a Supreme Court which has 26 justices. We don't want to go down that particular road. That's a battle that 
nobody can win. It's a little bit like the novelty with respect to the private attorney generals. That's a movement which should be stamped out. And I think changes in the size of the court is something that ought not to be entertained. All right, Richard, last topic I want to go over this week, and that is some news out of the attorney general's office that uh, Merrick Garland has not ruled out prosecuting former President Trump for his role in the January 6th attack. Now, it seems that some of the findings and testimony from the January 6th commission, you know, isn't helping Trump stay out of legal trouble, especially recent testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson that seems to be corroborated or at least not um, not negated uh, uh, while while under oath. So we've talked about this issue before a little bit, and I still think it's the I don't, my general feeling, at least, that the Georgia probe seems more dangerous of the two to President Trump. But the, uh, the, the Georgia uh, call and, and, and investigations there. But yes. I, I, I want to know from you, wh- what else would need to come out from the January 6th committee hearings in order to necessitate a charge against the former president? And should we, why, why shouldn't we indict a former president um, if, if there is no, no limit there? Well, I mean, you know, you're asking some questions. I don't think there's anything that necessitates that you bring charges, at least as a legal matter. Uh, One of the things that we know is that the doctrine of prosecutorial discretion is an inherent part of the office, and nobody quite understands how it ought to operate. It's pretty clear that taking into account the strength and weaknesses of a case on the fact and the limits of budget are always going to be legitimate. But beyond that, there's a lot of disagreements as to whether or not you could simply say we don't want to prosecute certain classes of cases or certain kinds of individuals. I think it's been sort of well understood before Trump that suing political opponents after they've left office and a protect a stripped of all their immunities has a little bit of the quality of running yourself a banana state. If I can do it to your guys, then you can do it to my guys and so forth. And in fact, I would think there's a kind of a nice thematic unity between this and the, the private attorney general stuff. What starts in Texas gets turned around uh, by the time you get the California. And my position is not that I favor one or the other. It's I'm opposed to both. And so well, here's the next situation. It turns out that uh, we don't want to talk about it now, uh, but it looks as though one could argue uh, that there is no investigation of comparable depth and security of Hunter Biden and his relationship to Joe Biden, both in the last days of the Obama administration and during the interregnum when he was out of office. Uh, there are connections that there may well be concealment. There may be criminal offenses. So first question is, do we want Mr. Garland, who works for the president, to say, I'm going to run a full-scale investigation of the president to see what's going on? Or do we want to leave that to the political processes and to um, uh, the New York Post? There's even a tough question, by the way, so whether or not you'd want to indict Hunter Hunter Biden, who's not in office, um, who may have done something. Do we want him to be investigated that way? So what you go, immediately you get this kind of political imbalance. Then the next question is, okay, suppose you want to do this. I'm not in favor of indicting presidents on principle, although if there's a man I would dearly love to see office, it has always been Donald Trump, as you well know on this show and on other writings as early as January, late January, early February 2017, I said, look, I mean, I don't want a Democrat in office, but I would be thrilled and I'd urge the President Trump to resign, which has not gotten me many accolades amongst his many supporters. And so I certainly don't want him to be elected, and I would do everything in my power to make sure that he could not secure the presidential nomination in 2024. But now you're trying to indict him. And here's the first problem that you have with this is, well, why didn't you get the impeachment charges to work? 
Well, if you looked at those charges, they were extraordinarily sloppy in the way in which they were drawn up in great kind of haste. There was a genuine question as to whether or not you could continue these particular hearings after the president was out of office. I thought the correct answer to that question was no, that you could not. But there were other people who certainly started to disagree with that. Then there's the question about, you know, what is the sanction? Um, Can you actually bar the president from running a gun if you convict him? And I think the answer to that question is no. What you can do is you can bar him from taking a, an office of trust and honor under the United States, but that means an appointive office, impeachment, even conviction does not bar you from running again. Uh, so the Democrats were probably wrong on that, although obviously the point would be surely litigated. But if you start looking at their situation, you want to get a quasi-criminal indictment, which is what high crimes and misdemeanors starts to require. And you say the president says, go to the Capitol and start the fight. Uh, all First Amendment doctrine says, did he urge them to engage in direct violence against somebody, or did he urge them to go to the edge of the Capitol building to make their voices heard so that they would refuse to count the ballots that were sent in, relying in part on the theories that had been developed by John Eastman, uh, which have, if you actually look at the precedent, some authority that the ability to count the ballots is an ability to examine whether they should have been canned. I don't want to get into that particular battle, but uh, you can't do it on that. Uh, The recent testimony has been on something which I regard as thoroughly inexcusable by the president. He sits there, he starts talking to Giuliani, who watches television. He doesn't order any of his particular supporters to go home, to get out of the Capitol building, even though he knows that there's mayhem going on there. I mean, the man, in some sense, is socially dense, utterly inexcusable. But at the same time, you then have to ask yourself the question, is this going to be some kind of indictable offense that you have? And in order to do that, traditionally, it's very difficult to sort of bring a criminal indictment on the ground that it's kind of a breach of a public office. Uh, There were extensive arguments made at the time of the impeachment that maladministration isn't enough, but breach of public trust is. Breach of public trust is not the same thing as criminal. So here's what the irony is. When people were going for the impeachment, they said you don't have to have a criminal trial, criminal offense. You could use something a little bit less than that. Serious breach of fiduciary duty being the common formulation. Now, when they come in, they can't indict on that, so they have to figure out what's going on. Well, is indifference incitement? You could argue that. I don't think I'd want to be on that side. You could say, well, there was a duty to speak because you had signed the oath of president, and silence, therefore, is the same thing as urging them on. Or what somebody else can say was callous indifference. It was stupid, uh, but it was sort of like the person who's sitting on the bridge and who has a rope and decides not to throw it down to somebody who's drowning in the seas below him. Can we punish him criminally? Probably not. Can we uh, basically flay him emotionally and morally? The answer is probably so. So they're going to have to go through all of those particular situations. And they're going to have to do it in a set of circumstances where what's going to happen is people are going to say it was dirty pool from the outset. Why was it dirty pool? Well, uh, Ms. Pelosi wanted to put this investigation committee together. Uh, the Republicans wanted to stack it with Trump's stalwarts, and she basically refused to do that. And then in a cynical kind of move, she took people who were very strongly Republican and anti-Trump and put them on a committee. And so what it is, is that at least of the people who are on the other side, it looks like a bit of a kangaroo court. They're not uh, trying to do the other person. Then you look at the procedures, and the issue is how much cross-examination is there by people who are hostile to what the witnesses have to say isn't much of that. 
All of this is fine as a matter of political theater. It's not something that you can start stop. But if now what you want to do is to take the evidence that is gathered in that particular body and use it to run the indictment, what you have to do is to say, I can't take this at face value if you're a man like uh, much from a court like Garland. You have to say, i got to interview all these people myself to see whether or not it's complete. I've got to do an enormous amount of background checks to see what the cross-examination is going to start to look like. That is, I have to do everything which says that I can take this testimony, which was given in one very sympathetic environment uh, to the anti-Trump forces, and do it in another environment where you have to be informed of a court of law, and you have to face this. Look, think of Miss Blasey Ford, right? You know, she was quite willing to be anonymous and to go after uh, Kavanaugh in front of one of these hearings. But the question is whether or not she would be prepared to do this in a judicial action where she could be subject to sustained cooperation, you know, cross-examination. That was just never going to happen. And she's completely disappeared from the legwork. They're just totally different kinds of setting. And he has to do this. And the last thing Mr. Garland has to worry about is can he maintain a credible position of illegal independence from the president if what he does is to indict somebody in order to ease the path uh, that Biden would face in running for re-election in 2024, if Biden should so choose to do so. I think it's going to be very difficult to do that. But I also think if you try to appoint a special prosecutor, you're going to run into great difficulties on that score. Who is that person going to be and how is it going to be accountable? What sort of budget do they have? All the rest of this stuff. So I think, in effect, uh, when I think back to something like the Ford pardon of Richard Nixon, it probably cost him a re-election. And I don't know whether it was right or wrong under those circumstances. Of course, it was pretty clear that Nixon was guilty of rather major crimes at the time. Uh, but I don't know whether I would have prosecuted. I would not have prosecuted then. Now, by the way, it's just not Garland that you have to worry about in this case, Tom, uh, because there could be state attorney generals will decide that he's in violation of local tax laws or fraud laws or one thing or another, and they can start bringing indictments. Uh, you mentioned to me, I think, that there's some proceedings going on in Georgia. My view about Trump is, as usual, he should not have behaved in a way where he browbeats uh, uh, the secretary of the state who was of his own party to, quote, unquote, find the votes. Uh, but I don't think it's an indictable offense if you can say, look, I happen to think in good faith that there were votes that were not counted or concealed or destroyed. And what I want you to do is to find them could be read on an innocent interpretation as saying, make sure you do your job. And it turns out that you're going to see a lot of resistance from that because no secretary of state wants to be accused of malfeasance and to acknowledge that he's been there. I don't think they should indict on that. Uh, so my view about Mr. Trump is that I think the most emphatic way to deal with him is to have those people who supported him turn against him as a political matter and say, look, you may comment, you may put on your road shows, you may play golf, you may do anything else. But please, sir, please, sir, announce right now and save this country an immense amount of misery by saying under no circumstances will you run for or accept an nomination for the presidency of the United States on the Republican Party ticket in the year 2024. That's what I think is the ideal outcome. And I hope at that point, it would put all of this very dangerous talk about a criminal prosecution of somebody who in an odd way deserves the worst fate that he could possibly receive. But I think the damage to our social institutions from indicting Trump is greater than not. And I think they're even greater if you indict him 
and it turns out he escapes conviction, at which point Lord knows what's going to happen. Off to the streets we go, I suppose. So I am not in favor of this for the reasons that I've just stated. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, over at definingideas at hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.